Come and get it. Good morning and welcome to episode 168 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from BaseballProspectus.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh. Ben, have you noticed that um, maybe, I don't know, 50 or 100 episodes ago, I quit fighting the, the good morning thing that you do? Uh, you mean you stopped saying good morning simultaneously or trying to... Uh, no, I stopped saying good evening. Oh, right. You, actually... stopped, you stopped the good morning, good evening. Yeah. No, I didn't. I didn't either. I just noticed it like this this moment. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we can change. Things do change. Um, all right. So it's uh, email Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Before we start, uh, I have a very quick story. Uh, I've I've mentioned on the podcast before. I think the twenty four hour diner that is a block from my apartment, uh, without which I probably would not survive. Because I have very little initiative when it comes to food preparation. Uh, so tonight, my girlfriend and I went to eat at the 24-hour diner. I have never known the 24-hour diner not to be open, except for a few days during Hurricane Sandy. But tonight, it was closed. So Passover. That, uh, no, because they were... Weak. <laughs> because Prop 8. They were filming an episode of Elementary. Oh, how about that? Yeah. Uh, and they they changed the whole place. It's usually you and I ate there when you were in New York last summer. It is it's named the Market Diner, but they put a, a new store sign on the side of it with like a big neon sign that said Parthenon uh, with with pictures of the Parthenon. So you watch Elementary, so you should let me know when there is a diner scene at a place called Parthenon. You don't watch it after your wonderful experience with the show and its producers. No, you and I pretty much put that show on the map uh, <laughs> between your tweet about how it's as good or better than, than Sherlock and then my article about how it's bad at uh, depicting baseball scenes accurately. Um, between us, we really we gave that show a boost, I think. But no, I haven't, I haven't watched it since I wrote that article because I was so exhausted from watching that one scene like 40 times that I couldn't bear to go back. Um, but I know you have you continued to watch it, so I hope you will let me know when the Parthenon makes an appearance. Yeah, I will let you know, and maybe we'll deconstruct the uh, the meal and how many I don't know how many different cows died in the <laughs> making of the burger or something like that. Right. Uh, I got an email from Jason Parks uh, after we recorded our Puig show yesterday, and by the way, Puig was optioned to Double A yesterday uh, after we recorded, so he will not be be pushing anyone uh, to start on opening day. Jason uh, said, uh, and I'm quoting now, I've spoken to a few front office sources out here about Puig, and I've seen him several times in camp. He's jumping fastballs like crazy, and most arms are just firing away without much of a plan. The book isn't out on him yet, and Arizona is a poor environment, especially this early in the season, to spin quality curveballs. And in order to build arm strength for the season, most pitchers are very fastball heavy right now. Puig is a dead red fastball hitter, so he is crushing the ball. I think this inflates his performance a great deal. He's a legit bat, but not much advanced scouting on him right now. Uh, and some readers sent us some things that Keith Law has said in a, a similar vein in the past few weeks. So um, that seems to be, I guess, the, the consensus among scouting types, or some scouting types at least, that that his spring training stats are not really maybe an accurate uh, representation of how he would do in the major leagues, which of course is is true for for just about everyone. 
and somebody else emailed to criticize us, I guess, for buying into his spring or something like that, um, which I didn't feel like we did. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I honestly, I have no idea what I say during these 20 minutes. Um, I will, I will say almost anything to avoid silence. Yes. Uh, but I don't recall that being the point of the show. I, I certainly, you know, don't think that the, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to think of him right now, but I think probably the, uh, my view of him hasn't changed, uh, more than a couple percent this spring so okay uh all right now wednesday email wednesday so this is from james who um points out and i, I want to read this one partly because you and i had this conversation a little bit um when we were planning pieces for this week but uh he points out that pakoda has the yankees uh finishing um seven games ahead of the blue jays it basically has the blue jays as a 500 team and the yankees as the al east favorites and this is counterintuitive, um, and I think it goes against Blue conventional Jays. wisdom. 84-78 The Blue Jays? Yeah. Okay, so I think that's actually new. I, I That's the latest run. I think that um, no, I, a few days ago they were at 82. I mean, it has the Yankees as a 91-win team, so it mm-hmm. thinks the Yankees are, are very good. Yeah, and a lot of people think that the Yankees are very bad, Um Tim Marchman, for instance, uh, wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal that may have been slightly tongue-in-cheek, I'm not sure, uh, about how Yankees fans get to root for a bad team for the first time in 20 years, and and here's how to do it. Um, and so I, uh, James asked some specific questions that I want to go through in order. Um, but in a general sense, um, Bill James has said something in the past about how a statistic that never surprises you isn't much good. Right. Uh, and this, I think, surprised both of us, this projection for the Yankees and this projection for the Blue Jays. Um, and I have to admit that even though I believe wholeheartedly in what Bill James said and, and when people criticize uh, or sort of cherry pick examples of stats uh, that are counterintuitive and use them as evidence that stats are, are evil. I've often used that Bill James kind of maxim mm-hmm. as, as evidence. But I also uh, find it very hard to actually tell myself that and accept it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I see the, this, the, you know, when I see the Yankees projected better than I think and the Blue Jays projected worse than I think, I very rarely think, well, I'm the problem and Pakoda has cracked the code. Do you ever feel that way or do you also – uh, continually just have to get proven wrong because you can't get past your own confidence. Yeah, pretty much the, the same way. If it's if it's something that, that doesn't really align at all with my expectations of things, then then yes, it's sort of a very forcible uh, process. I have to I have to tell myself that maybe I'm missing something, and I have looked at and and to be fair, I mean the the projections for teams are heavily dependent on our playing time projections, which is not a Pakoda thing. It's it's a thing that, that Jason Martinez has, has gone through and kind of projected playing time for everyone with input from the staff. So uh, so if we are being maybe over-optimistic about, about the Yankees' ability to stay healthy or something, it's it's more a reflection of our collective wisdom than, than Pakoda's algorithms. Um, but I don't know. When I look at the individual projections for players, I find it a little easier to believe, I guess, or at least 
I, I disagree with fewer of them, but uh, but as you said, James had some specific ones. Yeah, so James goes on, there are a few counterintuitive statements that Pakoda seems to be making to reach this overall conclusion. Which of these seem most slash least plausible? He lists seven. So I just want to go through quickly and see whether whether you on the whole would give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Yankees catchers taken as a whole are not below replacement level. Uh, I probably don't buy that. I might buy by it kind of because I think Chris Stewart is a very good defensive catcher and framing wise, but that's not something that Picota really incorporates. So I would think that if that weren't incorporated, I would expect him to be below replacement level. Yeah. Replacement level is really low. And if you can just stay on the field as a catcher, you can get pretty much there. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I like Chris Stewart's defense, yeah, uh, not just the framing, but the, right. the sort of, uh, uh, traditional stuff too so i will give that a thumbs up i don't like much the the backups behind chris stewart though no it's not a good group it's just i could see them being combined uh 0.02 warp mm-hmm. right yeah it's not it's not shocking all right melky cabrera is not for real yeah, and I, I looked up what that meant uh, in this context because I do sort of think Melky is a, a decline candidate and, and would have been even aside from from the, the positive test and everything. So he's projected for 1.4 wins above replacement in 551 plate appearances. So sort of, I guess, uh, and that's in left field. And so he's sort of a maybe average-ish, slightly below average left fielder, which, I don't know, doesn't sound crazy to me. Um, I would expect him to be more of a, a 2011 upside offensively than a 2012 upside. So, and I don't think much That was is 2.1 more. Right. So, I don't know. Well... Yeah, I mean, he was worth a 5.1 warp last year in two-thirds of a season before he got popped, and obviously there's regression from that, but um, I, I'll i take the over on 1.4 warp. I'll take the over on 2 warp. Okay. Um, I, you know, I think that 2011 is perfectly realistic, probably a pretty good projection, and considering that 2012 is slightly more recent— I'll even even with the Babbitt bluff and all that luck and all that, yeah. I'll still take the over. He's playing center in 2011, though, wasn't he? He was, but he was badly good at center, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, it shouldn't really, it shouldn't really, it probably shouldn't make that much of a difference. Uh, for 2013, Kevin Euclid is almost as good as Brett Lowry, Lowry, Lowry. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Uh, yeah, that La- one I don't Lowry. buy so much. Lowry, it's Lowry, isn't it? Uh, that I say Lowry. Yeah, yeah, so it has Euclid. I don't buy that one either. No, by the way, that, was, that was awful. Being better uh, <laughs> on a per plate appearance basis, and Laurie just having about 150 or so more plate appearances. So I buy the the Laurie having more playing time, but but not the rest of it. I like I like Laurie. Yeah, I have a hard time with that one. Uh, Colby Rasmus is not about to break out. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm completely okay with that. I I would say if you asked me to make a true statement, I would say <laughs> Colby Rasmus is not about to break out. Yeah. Um, and just leave it at that. Reduced playing time at all. Mark Teixeira is almost as valuable as Edwin Encarnacion. Uh, 
I I'm a believer in Encarnacion. He's yeah. he's exactly the sort of player that a projection system is is not. I mean, you're not going to have a projection for for Encarnacion that's based purely on stats that is as positive as Mark Teixeira. So I guess in this case, I I would disagree probably. Um, I w- I would disagree, but if it weren't for the reduced playing time, yeah. I would I would take Teixeira. Uh-huh. I think. Okay. Uh, CC Sabathia is the best pitcher in the division and about three warp better than R.A. Dickey. Uh, I'm okay with the first part, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, you could, I mean, you could make the case that David Price is better or, yeah, or something, right. but that's there. sort of off topic. Yeah. Um, so I certainly buy him being the, the best projected starter on, on these two teams we're talking about. And, and of course, Dickey is just a notorious breaker of projection systems and, and and that probably is, I guess, the number one thing that you could point to. Although he's not projected to be bad or anything, um, but certainly not Cy Young levels. So, so yeah, I would I would take the over on the Dickey projection. Uh, yeah, I I think I would say that uh, it's probably responsible to have Sabathia three warp better than Dickey. Uh, but if I were betting, I would bet that Dickey. Is uh, closes that gap, mm-hmm. and finally, more than half of the Yankees' perceived advantage comes from the bullpen. Three point six wins of it, which I that will you, say is that, <laughs> that all bullpen should be should have equal expectations. I believe that yes, I believe all that, in, except in extreme extreme circumstances, all bullpen should have equal expectations. So yeah. I will so, say that uh, if if that's where Pakoda is getting it from, mm-hmm. uh, then I would bet the over on the Blue Jays and probably bet the under on the Yankees. Yeah, I'd agree. So I hope that answers your question, James. Um, We're going to go to another question. Actually, I think the the next two, probably the final two, are somewhat related. They're both about ways of kind of looking at draft, the draft. Um, But Xander from Brooklyn, so we started thinking about auction drafts in fantasy baseball, and he says that uh, auction drafts made me wonder what the impact would be if MLB were to adopt this type of format for the Rule 4 draft. Uh, how would you feel about such a change? I think this would be the fairest possible manner in which to portion out talent among major league teams. A team scouts a player, they put a dollar value on him, and then they have the opportunity to bid on his services regardless of where they placed in the standings the previous year. If MLB wanted to continue to advantage inferior teams, they could allocate each team's money on a sliding scale inversely to their record, but no team would be prevented from going out and taking any individual talent if they think he's worth the investment. Uh, And I would say, just I would just note that this is essentially... um, a uh, you know a more open version of what baseball was like up until 1965, mm-hmm. and scouts uh, seems like still long for the good old days when it was like that. Um, but I actually want to expand it a little bit and um, talk about what it would be like if Major League Baseball owners um, made all free agents uh, basically uh, if they auctioned off all free agents. And I guess the problem is that. Well, I guess the, the problem is that the player doesn't have to, you know, the player gets to choose too. They don't have to go to the, to the, to the highest bidder. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that right now players have this huge advantage in the free agent market because um, they can, well, they can essentially collude with each other. 
because all the information they can leak all this information to reporters and have all the the information be on MLB trade rumors and such. And so it becomes this market where uh, they know how much teams are offering, but teams don't necessarily have the ability to do that without risking collusion. Mm. And it seems that it, the teams would have this wonderful advantage that might be legal and wouldn't violate collusion if they all just agreed that they would bid against each other in an open room and that all their their um, their their offers would be public. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't I this is probably it probably wouldn't be legal. It probably would count as collusion somehow because I don't know. But I think that that would be a fun day. Yeah, they did that. This would be a, a very fun draft day as well. It People might actually watch day. the baseball draft. Yeah. I mean, uh, certainly there would be a lot more. It would be a, a, a much more kind of dynamic uh, picking environment mm-hmm. where there would be a lot more strategy. There would be uh, a lot more nuance. And you wouldn't have to wait 29 picks to see who your team was going to be involved with because your team could theoretically be involved in every player. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a great idea. So what's the downside? Besides it not being possible for uh, collective bargaining reasons. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, as long as you do, as he says, as long as you you do allocate each team's money based on its record, so that the the worst teams would have more of an opportunity to spend. Uh, it doesn't seem off the bat to be something that would hurt competitive balance, to me. Um, and it would certainly allow teams to beef up their scouting staffs and, and make more of an impact in that area. If they could really set themselves apart, possibly, uh, not having to wait for a, a certain pick to draft or to select, I would think. Yeah, I wonder if you had this system where, uh, uh, where teams were bidding. I wonder what percentage of the time you would see the player go to the highest bidder and how often you would see the player kind of reject the highest bid because of mm-hmm. the circumstance. Um, if you had to guess, would you guess that it would be closer to 95% of the time or closer to like 20% of the time or somewhere in the middle? Uh, I think it For would both be... major leaguers and for, for, for draftees. For draftees, I think it would be pretty, pretty rare. Um, just that they would go to a lower bid. Yeah, because, I mean, you're years away from making the majors anyway, so a, a team that is not competitive at the time that you're drafted is not necessarily still going to be a losing team by the time you actually get to the majors. Uh, so, I don't know, we might just see every prospect avoid the Marlins or something, but I would think the majority of teams you would probably want to go not only to the place that was willing to give you the most money, but also just liked you best as a prospect and, and had the biggest stake in your development uh, mm-hmm. and, and and would possibly be more committed. I guess uh, for free agents, for major league free agents, it would probably be more common. Um, but I would say probably not more common than 20% of the time. Yeah, you hear teams, there are certain teams that complain about not being able to to get free agents 
as easily either because of their geographic location or their ballpark or the fact that they are terrible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's hard to actually know how much of that complaining is true and how much of it is a convenient excuse to put in front of the public. Uh, But if we auctioned players off in public so that everybody could see every team's bid, we would know. We would also, it would be incredible, I think, for evaluating front offices because you would just get so much more data you mm-hmm. i mean it doesn't really help to try to evaluate front offices just on the players they sign you really need to know what they thought of every player they didn't sign yep. to really get enough data you need to you need them to put the dollar sign on the muscle mm-hmm. basically and you need to evaluate all that all that data and so it would be a lot of fun for us i think to really see uh how much they um value every single player who is available to them be a delight. Yes. And that's probably why they should do it. <laughs> yeah. We need we, we need more material. And so finally Eric uh, says uh, also asks about draft picks. He says let's pretend the draft bonus restrictions don't exist. Should generational talents accept like Harper or Strasburg accept a lifetime contract offer of 100 million dollars as their draft bonus? Would it have been wise for Washington to have offered it at the time? It seems that right now both contracts would have been big wins for the team, but of course it was no guarantee. Does your answer depend on whether it's a pitcher or a hitter? And um, I kind of answered this uh, about a year ago, right? You did. Yeah, so I wrote about whether a team should or will uh, ever offer a player like Mike Trout or Bryce Harper a 20-year deal, uh-huh. and if they do, how much they should they should pay. And I think that they, I think that this is actually a situation where um, that deal actually benefits both sides pretty clearly and pretty obviously. Um, the player is uh, still in a situation of kind of tremendous personal risk where they're either going to be a hundred millionaire or if something bad happens, they're going to be like a two millionaire. And that's a huge difference. I mean, that's, you're, you're literally talking about four or five or six generations down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, would, I think that most, many people, if not all people, but many, many people would gladly give up um, the second hundred million to lock in the first hundred million. Yeah, I think and, just about yeah. any player would do this. Um, yeah, well, so uh, I, I, there's a reason whether, well, I'm, we'll get to it. But yeah, and then from a team's perspective, teams are essentially just running, um, you know, they're running insurance companies. And so for them, it's, it's just about risk management and uh, figuring out, you know, the actuarial tables. And I think almost every team would, would be able to profit based on this. And that's why you see these long term deals being signed earlier and earlier for, uh, pre-ARB players. So the reason a player wouldn't do it, though, I think, is that um, you don't. Uh, you can get. You don't. You basically you can't get your first hundred million probably, but you could get your first twenty pretty easily if you're this kind of talent, or thirty, or forty, or fifty, or sixty, and um, still hit free agency in your late twenties. So you. Uh, you don't basically have to give up all of your future earning potential in order to lock in guaranteed security. You only have to 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 give up some of it, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So, like when I was talking about Trout signing a twenty-year deal before before last year started, um, and I was talking about how you know he would love to get one hundred and twenty million dollars 
now and not have any risk. Except if he wanted to, to, to really you know, get safety and security from the Angels, he probably could have gone to them and signed a seven-year extension for $30 million at the time with a couple of maybe team options. And the difference between uh, $2 million and $100 million is huge, but the difference between $30 million and $100 million isn't really all that huge. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that it's enough of an incentive to give up your your sort of maximum potential because what you're giving up is the difference between you know 100 and maybe 350 if everything breaks right i mean trout might make 350 or might make 500 million dollars in his career mm-hmm. um and so you really need to basically figure out a way to put the leverage screws to the player when that he's really poor <laughs> and and doesn't have a lot of leverage right. and um and a player like harper or strasburg uh, the type of player that Eric is asking about is probably in a position to get enough security that you can't really put the screws to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and does your answer depend on whether it's a pitcher or a hitter? Uh, no, I mean I, I I mean I might offer a hitter more, but mm-hmm. uh, I would I would run the actual actuarial tables for either one and make a slightly less than fair offer to either. Uh-huh. All right. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, stop there. Okay. Uh, that was fun, fun times. Mm-hmm. We have more questions that we wish we could have gotten to, and maybe yeah, we maybe will we in a future show. Get, them, get to them next week, but, but send yeah. us more at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Very good questions this week. All right.